0: to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Well, good morning. It's uh, yeah, good to be here with you all this morning. And I and, um, just wanted to start by just saying thank you for all the ways that you support Jen and I and our ministry with every tribe, and uh, the ways that you encourage us and, and um, financially support us, all those things. We couldn't be uh, serving the Lord in Northwest Ontario without um, all of you having our backs. And, and we definitely feel that. And it's, it's definitely overwhelming at times to just realize how many people are um, supporting you and praying for you. And, and that's one of the things that just kind of spurs you on in ministry. So, um, so thank you again. And if you would, just, uh, I want to begin by praying. And if you would, just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is uh, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord, that, um, and that it doesn't, your word doesn't go out void, Father, but it accomplishes what you send it forth to do. And Lord, we just pray that your word would um, just accomplish your work in our hearts and in our lives, and that we would see your glory um, on display through your word. And Father, I just, I pray that you would just give me grace as I communicate, and I pray that I could communicate clearly, and that you would be lifted up, and that your people would be built up in Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, the title of this message is, Seeing the Glory of God. What propels us to say, here I am, send me? And so that's the argument I'm going to make throughout this sermon. And so the fuel for us being able to say, here I am, send me, is seeing God, having a clear vision of God. And so I'm just going to start with a little uh, story as an intro here. In 2010, a New York Times reporter um, was interviewing Steve Jobs. And he said, um, he, he, he told Steve, he said, your kids must love love the iPad, right? Um, and Steve and Steve Jobs actually told the reporter, he said, they haven't used it. He said, We limit the amount of technology our children use at home. And so a man by the name of Walter Isaacson writing Steve Jobs' biography ask him if there was any special reason for that. And Jobs said, uh, the fa- and he said, well, he actually went in the home and observed, like, how they lived together and kind of just how they were a family together. And he said that um, the family focused more on history or reading as well as activities that had to do with technology. He said, every night, Steve insisted on dining at the big kitchen table talking about history and a variety of other things. No, no one ever took out an iPad or computer. The kids didn't seem addicted uh, to their devices. And so, interestingly, this is the practice of Bill Gates as well, like having a low-tech home. And yet these are the guys that have created so many things for us to use, so many gadgets to hold our attention, and yet they don't use them in their homes. And so, i read uh, some statistics on a recent survey that says the average American will spend the equivalent of 44 years, 44 years of their life, looking at some kind of digital screen. And so, that number keeps rising, though. And so, and the reason I say that, the reason I tell those stories is that a big theme in the prophets... And the Old Testament prophets, is we become like what we worship. We become like what we fix our eyes on. And so if we worship idols of, gold, or of wood or silver or gold, like we become like them. Like those idols can't, they can't uh, see, they can't hear, they can't think. And so when we fix our eyes on Idols and worship them, we become blind, we become deaf, and we become unable to think like them, because we were reflectors. We don't have any light in ourselves, um, but we reflect the light of the Lord. Like we we were made in His image, and we're we're meant to behold Him. We're meant to look at Him. In fact. In scriptures, the word behold is used 1,532 times. And it's usually a command statement. It's usually something like, look at this thing. It's really important. It's a really, this is a really important thing. This is a really important thing I'm about to do. Pay attention to what I'm doing. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And so the problem that Israel has, and we're going to get to Isaiah 6 if you want to turn there, Um, in your Bible but the problem that Israel has um, at this point in history in Isaiah's time is that Israel's been called to be and this isn't just a a problem for Israel in Isaiah's time this is a problem throughout their history is that they're called to be a holy people right a holy nation set apart for the glory of God but what they want is to be like everyone else they want a king like everyone else They want to marry foreign women like everyone else. They wanted to worship foreign gods like all the nations around them. And so, but God wanted his people to be a holy city, a beacon of light to the world. Um, But now they're in jeopardy of facing God's wrath because they've become just like all the wicked nations around them. And so that's the dilemma that Israel's facing during Isaiah's time. And so, so God sends Isaiah the prophet to call Israel to repentance and to be faithful to the covenants that they have made to God. They're calling him, he's calling them back to repentance, calling them back into re- relationship with God. And so in Isaiah 6, I know we've went over this chapter several times, but it's kind of like our main text for this series, and I just want to quickly look at it. We're going to look at four different people and kind of how they beheld the glory of God and how that compelled them to say, Here I am, send me. And the awesome thing is I could literally write this sermon like four or five more times and just plug four different people in, and it's it's still true. That pattern holds true. And so here we are in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood Seraphim, each had six wings. Uh, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who, who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I have a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand on a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. For your your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Doesn't sound like a very encouraging thing to have to go do, right? Basically go make the people not be obedient. Um, And so the first thing I want to look at is how Isaiah saw the Lord. That's how this starts and that's what That's what transforms Isaiah. um, That he sees the Lord, and he sees himself in comparison to the Lord, right? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Like, that's not something that anyone has to tell Isaiah at that point. He recognizes how holy God is, and how sinful he is, and how, in fact, how sinful all the people that live around him are. And so, there was no... There was no message to Isaiah about him being a sinner it's like when you see God, you realize how how much how lacking you are right and so so Isaiah is transformed and but here's the problem he's not holy uh, he he's a sinner, and so that's a huge dilemma here but instead of God judging him or destroying him for his sin and for his rebellion against him, he actually uh, this angel comes and takes this burning coal and touches it to his lips and says, Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And so and so we don't we just see Isaiah responding, right? He's responding to the Lord. He's responding to what he's seen of God. And and this is this obviously isn't something that Isaiah is doing, right? This is the election of God, right? This is God choosing Isaiah revealing himself to Isaiah, and, and Isaiah responding and realizing who he is and in repentance. Um, and then God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so one of the things I want to state here is that God, God's not asking a question that he doesn't know the answer to. God knows the end from the beginning, right? He knows Isaiah's going to go. Um, and so I would state that this is actually what we call an, an, indirect, uh, it's an indirect question, right? This is a different culture than ours. And so how this works is, um, and how I know this, is up in Canada. The first time we went to Muskrat Dam, we were invited to a feast, a big, huge community feast. And I'm kind of standing over there by where they're cooking the food. And the chief comes over to me, and he starts making some small talk, saying how food's amazing. It doesn't ha- matter how much you have. It always seems to be enough. You know, people will just take less, and there's plenty to go around. And then he kind of he stops, and he's like, kind of looks around, real exaggerated, right? He kind of is like, he's like, I wonder who could pray for our meal. You know, like, I wonder who could do that. Or who, and I'm kind of like, I know he was asking me, because that's how they ask. They don't, because if he straight up asks me and I say no, then, like, that hurts our relationship, right? Like, I, I just uh, rejected him. And so if he says it that way, then it's a little bit like... Like, but I knew. Like, I know enough about the culture that he was asking me, but I'm like, oh, I don't want to take that honor on myself, you know? Like, oh, I was hesitant. And he kind of asked again. And then eventually he just turned to me, and he's like, would you pray for our food? <laughs> like, because like, I was, like, too dense to not understand what he was doing. But he was... He intended the whole time, right, for it to be me. And he came over there to indirectly ask me, and I believe that's what God's doing here with Isaiah. God knows, God knows Isaiah's, what, you know, the end of Isaiah's life, right? And so, what he's really saying is, um, is who, who, would, who would have the honor? Who would have the honor of, of going and taking this message? And so Isaiah is responding here um, in worship. He's, he's responding because he's seen the Lord. The Lord has forgiven him. And now he's like, you know what? Like, I'll I'll go. And so. And so now we see Isaiah, he's now one of the only people in Israel who hears and sees and understand what's, what God is doing, right? Everyone else, we read here in verse uh, ten, uh, 9, that they're going to keep on hearing but not understanding, keep on seeing but not perceive. Their heart's going to be dull, their ears are going to be heavy, their eyes are going to be blind. But Isaiah has seen the Lord, right? And so he's the he's one that, that knows what God's doing. He sees what God's doing. And so... But Israel, instead of worshiping the true God, had traded uh, blindness and deafness for worshiping these other gods. But now Isaiah is going to go with them because he's, he's going to go to them because he's seen the Lord. And so, again, my main point, saying here I am, send me, is always a response to how much we have seen God's glory and grace in our lives. Like Isaiah is just responding to what he's seen of the Lord. And going in the name of the Lord is an act of worship because Christ first came for us, right? Like, we didn't initiate the relationship, right? God came into our world, became a man, suffered and died on the cross in our place for our sins. Like, he has taken the initiative. And he's taken the initiative in Isaiah's life, and Isaiah responds appropriately. And and so, yeah. God takes the initiative in our lives, too, and so we respond appropriately by saying, you know, like God asking, who would, who would have the honor of going in my name? And we can say, here I am, send me. And so I just wanted to share a quick testimony about coming to Eden in the first, us coming to Eden in the first place. When we came here, we hadn't went to church in like three years. And it was kind of scary, but uh, we ended up getting to know Eden through some volleyball nights, and then um, when Brandy was in the hospital, we got to know Matt and Jason, and so when we decided, hey, let's go back to church, it was easy to say, let's go over there, because we kind of knew some people. And so, my very first Sunday here, um, it was I think it was in 2011, I still need to figure out when we were preaching through Judges here, because the sermon that Matt was preaching was actually the end of Judges where the the, I can't remember what tribe he was from, but he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he had his concubine, and they couldn't find a place to stay, and a guy took him in, but then some people came in the night, and basically beat on the door, and the guy shoves his concubine out the door, and um, and they just kind of have their way with her all night, and he comes out in the morning, and he looks at her, and he said, come on, let's go, we got to get to Jerusalem, and she's Like he kind of like, she's dead. And so, so it was through, the funny thing is now I read like 10 sermons that nobody preaches anymore. That's one of them, right? Like online, that's like one of the sermons that nobody preaches anymore. But that was the very thing that I needed to hear because of how I was treating my wife. And so God convicted me that morning. And it was like this, what Isaiah said here, woe is me. You know, like I'm a sinner, like I knew like like God was reading my mail, right, and so I was like, "Well, I think this is where the Lord wants me to go to church because uh yeah, he just used a message that no one preaches to like like show me his glory, right and so then it was just um we started getting involved in community groups and um and then after a couple years, school ministry started up, and I kind of like, I think like the day before it started or the week before it started, I was like, all right, I'll go. Joe kind of talked me into going, Joe Drake. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go. And it was, um, it was through that that uh, my, my understanding of who God is coming out of school and ministry was so much more solid than any time previously in my life. Like I had went to... A lot of other churches that just weren't teaching me very, you know, solid truth, and um, we actually took a trip to Desiring God Pastors Conference, and we were doing all sorts of things like that, helping with youth ministry, and then going to eventually T4G and CrossCon, and then Revive Indiana was around, we went to a bunch of that, and it was like, all these things that we were a part of is kind of, it's like, all the kindling, right, that God's putting on your life, and it's like he's showing you who he is, like through these normal means of just being involved in church and community groups and and just the different things, and it, like when push came to shove after like six years of just all this stuff pouring into your life, listening to sermons constantly at work, it's like of course, like, here I am, send me, right? Like, you see the glory of God through all those various means in your life that put around you. And so and so yeah I just want to look at a few other uh, pretty big figures in the Bible here and kind of see how that pattern plays out in their life. And The first one we're going to look at here is John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist preceded Christ in every way. He was born before Jesus. He was preaching before Jesus, he baptized before Jesus, and he died before Jesus died, right? And so, but much like most of the Old Testament, we see this kind of played out over and over again, the older will serve the younger. Like, even though he was before him, he was, uh, Christ, was Christ was preeminent, right? Christ was above him. And he even says that in John 1, 29 through 34, it says, and the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so John says that after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John knew that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, right, that had come into the world. And he saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, like John saw amazing things, um, you know, as, as he was, as he seeing Christ, right? Seeing the Spirit descend on him like a dove, like, that would cause you to have a lot of faith in, in Christ. And actually, the Father had told John, that's John's whole reason for coming, right? Like, you're going to be baptizing people, the Messiah is going to come. And when you see the Spirit come on him, you know that's, that's him. That's the guy. And so... Obviously, that's a pretty awesome thing. None of, none of us have gotten to see Jesus baptized in the Spirit, descend on him like a dove. And so, but John's going to face a crisis um, later on in his life, later on in his ministry. And at this point, we're going to pick up at the end of John's life, he's facing certain death, right? Um, at the hands of Herod, you know, he's preaching to Herod that it's not lawful for you to have your your brother's wife, and he ends up getting thrown in prison, and John begins to question a little bit, like, whether Jesus is, in fact, the promised Savior, right, because he's suffering in prison, and so we're going to read Luke chapter 7, if you guys want to turn there, verses 18 to 23. I'll give you a second. So John knew that Jesus was the Messiah but now he's suffering, right? He's in prison and he's he's just wondering like is he like is he going to rescue me from this place, you know, is he going to rescue me from dying here? And so Luke 7:18 the disciples of John reported all these things to him and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord saying, "Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another?" And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases, and plagues, and evil spirits, and many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so, it's possible that John thought that Jesus was kind of that conquering Messiah, right? Like, he's going to restore everything to Israel, he's going to make things right, and yet here he is suffering in prison, so maybe Jesus isn't fulfilling what he thought Jesus, yeah, maybe... Jesus isn't fulfilling what John thought he was going to do, right? Because he's stuck there; he's going to die. And so Jesus knew that John, in his darkest hour, needed a fresh vision of who he is, who God is, and so so that he could stand firm in the in that truth in the face of death. And so what Jesus actually does is he fulfills um, a couple prophecies from Isaiah from Isaiah twenty nine eighteen 18, and Isaiah 35, 5. So the, John's disciples come to Jesus, and Jesus does a bunch of miracles, and then he says, tell them tell what you saw, and tell them what you heard, and Jesus quotes Isaiah. And if there's anyone that knows what Isaiah said, it's John, because he was, a, he was filled with the Spirit from birth. He's a Nazarite. He ne- never had strong drink, drink touch his lips. He was raised in a very a devout conservative community that knew what the prophets had said. And so Jesus is, is saying, look, I just fulfilled all the... I am the Christ. I am the Christ. And so then he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Like, I'm not going to deliver you from this, this death, but I am the Messiah. Like, I'm not delivering you from this death like you thought I was going to. And so... So John became like Jesus, the one he worshipped, right? We become, what, we become like what we worship. Lovingly speaking the truth to his neighbors and dying for it. When, he faced, when faced with either compromising his message of speaking truth to power, to speaking truth to Herod, John said, here I am, send me. And he was beheaded, like he He died. And so, Jim Elliot says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Like John um, gave his life for his faith in Christ. He gave what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose, eternal life, uh, because of his faith in Christ. And uh, Jesus tells us of John, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so he was a forerunner to Christ in every way, like even in his death. Um, And when faced with his death, he said, Here I am, send me. He didn't shrink back from it. And so now, looking to Jesus, Matt talked a lot to us out of Isaiah 53 last week. And that's where I'm going to start. Isaiah 53.3 says this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so, I want to make the argument Jesus was actually suffering before he was even born. Because there was many who accused his parents of having a child out of wedlock. Um, There would have been a shame and a stigma that came along with that. They didn't believe in the uh, immaculate conception that this this uh, child was conceived of God. And so even before he's born, he's, he's, his family's suffering, and that's what he's born into. And so they couldn't even find a proper place for King Jesus to be born, right? Like, here's the king of the world, here's the God of all eternity coming in to the world, and yet the only place that they had for him was a, a manger. And those who came to worship him were shepherds, right? They're not well connected important people they 're the, the least of these, and yet that that 's who Jesus saves right the least of these right because the proud um, God gives, gives grace to the humble, um, but um, resists the proud and so and not only was there no place for Jesus to be born, uh, King Herod, the same guy that ends up killing john tri- is trying to kill Jesus right because he hears from the wise men that there's this king that's born and he's like you know what that guy's gonna he's gonna supplant me he's gonna take my place so let's let's just take care of him before he, he even grows up and we know the tragic story of Herod killing all the children in in Bethlehem under two years old and Jesus having to flee to to Egypt uh, with his family and so so yeah it's not you know we have all these uh, we think of all the the benefit of Christ coming into the world during Christmas, and we celebrate him coming into the world, but it wasn't no cup of tea for him. Like he was, he's on the run from, like, to, you know, as a baby, you know, fleeing for his life. And so, but we see how Jesus, him, even Jesus himself, has a clear view of his father. Many times we see these experiences that Jesus has where, um, we saw one at his baptism, right, where the spirit descends on him like a dove and the mountain of transfiguration. Um, this is my son in whom I'm well, pleased. listen to him. And that wasn't for Jesus' benefit, right? That's for the disciples' benefit. Jesus knows who he is. And we often see Jesus retreating to lonely and solitary places to pray. Like Jesus was continually seeking the face of his father in the face of a lot of difficult ministry and stiff-necked people that he was going to preach to that weren't listening to him, like Jesus would take those and cast those cares on his Father. And that's where we find him in this section we're going to look at. um, Just before he is um, unjustly convicted of crimes that that he didn't commit, we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, if you want to turn there. We'll look at this here. Luke 22:39. And he came out and went, and he came out and went, as was his custom, this was a customary place that they would go all the time, to the Mount of Olives. and the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, "Pray that you may not enter into temptation." And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, "Father." And so it's amazing here that we see Emmanuel, God with us, like suffering in prayer, needing to be strengthened. And then we remember that Christ is, not only is he fully God, he's fully man. And he experiences hunger and fatigue and pain and thirst and anguish, just like the rest of us. And yet he's facing something that none of us will ever face, and that is, the full fury of the wrath of God for all humanity. And we know that it was God's will to crush him, right? As Matt talked about last week. And yet, even in this moment, before the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the Son of God, we see the grace of the Father sending an angel to strengthen his Son in this moment of greatest need. And so, he says in verse 13, 32, essentially, he's saying, Father, if you are willing, take away this horrible shame and death I am about to suffer. Nevertheless, here I am, send me. Send me to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. And so, we know that Jesus died for us, right? His enemies. He died for his enemies. He died for his people, and he, he died a shameful and brutal death even though he had committed no crime, right? The just for the unjust. The just died for the unjust. He didn't do anything wrong. He was completely innocent. He could have defended himself, but he didn't, because he knew that's what he had to do. He had to go to the cross to absorb the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven of our sins. It's called the great exchange, right? He takes God's wrath, we get God's grace, And so, I want to jump to Hebrews twelve. Hebrews twelve one. Go ahead and turn there. This is right after the faith chapter, right? The uh, Hebrews chapter eleven it says, "Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely." In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And so, I just want to focus on verse 2 there, where it says, looking to Jesus. And so, that's something that Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, many think that's Paul, is something that we need to look to him, how faithfully he suffered how and willingly he went to the cross and how, how faithfully he endured um, hostility against himself at the hands of sinners. Like he's our example. He's the one that we're supposed to fix our eyes on. And he says in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. We're to think about that. And so we look to Jesus and consider him. We learn from his, his example how to endure hostility Jesus resisted the temptation his entire life to return evil for evil, right? Like, and he was obedient to the point of death. Like, he obeyed to the very end. He went to the cross. Um, he didn't try to save himself by his own hand. Even when Simon Peter cuts off the guy's ear, he's like, you know what, I could call down legions of angels right now to deliver me from this moment. But he knew that he had to go to the cross, and so he didn't try to save by his own hand. And it says for the joy set before him he endured the cross. He knew what the co- the cross would accomplish, salvation for mankind, glory for the Father, glory for himself. And so and so he endured the shame of the cross because he and he considered it joy because he knew what it accomplished. And so how do we look to Jesus here it says looking to Jesus considering him like how do we do that if if we if our saying here i am send me is relationship is directly related to how much we've seen of god how do we do that and i would first say that we um like he lives right we can look to jesus because he's alive he's seated at the right hand of god matthew 28:20 20 says and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. That's probably the most comforting verse to me as a missionary. Like, no matter what hard thing I'm going to go into or anything that I don't, prepare for, that I don't feel prepared for, I know that, that he is with me. And so I can fix my eyes on him at any time. Like, he's omnipresent. And so... We, like as the scripture says, we must believe that he is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so, lastly here, I want to look at the Apostle Paul. And that's in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And this is, this is Saul. He's an enemy of Christ at this point. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so Jesus appears to Saul. He blinds him. He ends up sending him to Ananias. And Ananias is afraid, like, I can't go pray for this guy. Don't you know who this is? He's been uh, uh, giving consent to... He had been the one who they cast Stephen's clothes at his feet when they they, uh, stoned him to death. And now he was going to lock up more Christians. And so Ananias doesn't want to go pray for Saul that he would be healed of this blindness. But in verse 15 of chapter 9, he says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so, so basically, Jesus sees Saul and he says, there he is, send him. Saul has nothing to do with that, right? Saul's going to persecute more Christians. He's going to throw, throw a bunch more of them in jail. He's going to go put these heretics down. And yet Jesus chooses Saul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's transformed from an enemy of Christ into an apostle. And so, yeah. How would Paul endure all the suffering for the name of Jesus that Jesus is promising that's going to happen? Paul had seen Jesus. He had a clear view of who he was. And Paul knew how much he himself had been forgiven through Christ. And that was what would, that's what would sustain Paul in difficult ministry. He had, he had given consent to Stephen's death. He was the greatest of all sinners. In 1 Timothy 1 15 through 17 says, This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost or the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This causes Paul to Worship at this point and to praise God. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul knew that he was the worst of sinners. He knew that God, how much God had forgiven him. He literally was the worst. He had Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, put to death. But Paul became like the one who he, whom he worshiped, right? Loving his enemies. To the end, in response to Jesus' mercifully saving Paul, Paul said, here I am, send me. And Paul's own people hated him after that. They tried to destroy every church that he planted. They stoned him to death, left him for dead, thought he was dead. He wasn't. And they eventually put him to death because he appealed to Caesar because they just kept pursuing him and pursuing him and pursuing him. But this is what Paul said about his people. In Romans 9, I am speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Like, he says, you know what? I love my people so much, the people that hate me, that I would I would rather that I would go to hell and that they could go to heaven. And so the only way that Paul could love his people that much is because he knew who Jesus was and how much Jesus had forgiven him when he was, he was an enemy of Christ, killing his people. And so Paul can endure that hardship from his own people because Christ endured it on Paul's behalf. Christ endured that persecution from Christ or from Paul and so and that's why we, we're never going to get love for our neighbors by watching Fox News like it's not going to happen. We'll just become more jaded and cynical like the only way that we can get love for our neighbors is to understand how much Christ has loved us when we were his enemies. And so when we see the glory of God, we can say, here I am, send me. And so Paul, Paul isn't ultimately jaded by his own people's stiff-necked rejection of the gospel because he was once them. So Hudson Taylor, I have a Hudson Taylor quote, he says, as a five-year-old boy, he says, when I am a man, I mean to be a missionary and go to China. That's what he said when he was five. When he was a young man, he says, I feel I cannot go on living unless I do something for Christ in China. And then Hudson Taylor, late in life as a veteran missionary in China, said, if I had a thousand lives, I'd give them all for China. And that's super convicting to me when a lot of times I don't want to give one life for the First Nation people in Ontario, right? It's so easy to get jaded by the sin And just constantly doing the same thing over and over again, right? And you're seeing that people destroy their lives. And you're like, is this worth my life? But you know what? God in Christ has been patient with me, right? Like when I was his enemy, he died for me. And so, all these men that I've just talked about, this verse in John chapter 12 verse 24 is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so, so are we like Paul, you know, willing to um, love our neighbors even when they hate us? Um, and I just argue that we're only, we're only capable of doing that by fixing our eyes on Jesus and realizing he did that for us. And so, so again, our saying, here I am, send me, is always a response to what we have seen of God's glory and grace in our lives. And so how do we see more of God? This is, I'm closing here, and this is our application. How do we see more of him? How do we get a vision of God's glory so that I can love my neighbors that are unlovable, like I like I was once was, you know, and and Christ graciously loved me. And I would say this, that the church, that this church has been given great leaders and shepherds um, who have committed their lives to helping you see God more clearly, to seeing the glory of God more clearly. And so just think of all the opportunities you have to see more of the glory of God. Sunday morning worship, Sunday school, community groups, family worship guide, family devotional and prayer, school of ministry, early morning prayer, fellowshipping with other believers, women's ministry, personal Bible study and prayer. Those are all the things that um, leaders here have worked really hard to give opportunities for you to see the glory of God, to see Christ at work in your lives. And the thing is, you never know what, what one of those things God's going to use to give you a glimpse of his glory, right? But if you're not using the things that God has given you, the common graces, that's how God works most of the time, just through regular, ordinary means, um, don't be surprised that you see very little of who God is and very little of his glory. And so what I would say then is... Continue to do what you're doing and do it more. Do it more faithfully. Do it more frequently. If you're a part of school and ministry, like, keep going. Do as, read the books, right, that they're giving you. Write the papers. The more that you do those things, the more you'll glimpse who God is, right? And then from those things, from seeing more clearly who God is, then your heart will respond by saying, here I am, send me. And so use the means that God has given you that God has placed here and be, and be faithful in those things and God will, God will show you himself he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and so in closing I just want to, to say a few lines here from a song and this is what again back to beholding right to seeing God behold our God seated on the throne come let us adore him behold our king Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Like we sing, And we sing that this Christmas, come, let us adore him. And so, if you would, just pray with me in closing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you graciously saved us, Lord. That you mercifully came into our lives, into our world, when we were your enemies. And Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you faithfully endured um, us continually chasing after other things, Lord, chasing after sin that we thought would satisfy, and yet it only left us more empty. Lord, we thank you that you are good, that you're gracious, and that you initiated a relationship with us. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. You're the you're the one who opened our eyes so that we would see you. And Lord, we pray that we could, like you, um, love our enemies, love our neighbors, and, and, and graciously endure as we preach the gospel to them and continue to hope, uh, continue to pray, and not be jaded, uh, knowing that you are good and that you are a God who saves. And. Lord, we praise you for this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.